Oh, the violin. Could there be a more quintessential example of instrumental expressivity in Western music? It sings, it dances, it can even play chords and make extra musical sounds upon its shapely wooden form. How did the humble fiddle become the very symbol of classical orchestral and chamber music? The answer to this question has all the makings of a fascinating musical journey, so tune in, tune up, and check the hairs in your bow as we prepare to embark on a voyage to explore the violin with me, Vlad Smishkevich. Travels begin far towards the east of Europe, with an eye and an ear cast out upon the steppes of Eurasia along that famous trade route known as the Silk Road. The ancestor of what would become Europe's most well-known virtuoso instrument began as any one of several folk fiddles that were ubiquitous throughout Central Asia, the Middle East, and up and down to the east and west of the Ural Mountains. The sounds we're hearing now, played by the ensemble Hunhurtu, belong to the Igil, sometimes called the Morin Hur, a large fiddle from the area of what now encompasses Tuvan, Mongolia. Essentially a box covered with horse skin, with a long stick running the length of the box and sticking out at either end, the shorter end forms a spike at the bottom, and the longer piece serves as a neck out the top. The strings were, at first, made of horsehair, just like the hairs in the bow itself, and the bow's hair was rubbed with the resin of those same pine trees that populated the taigas of Central Asia. This was an instrument inextricably linked to its natural landscape, and even though it would find its way into smaller forms, the Joza of the Tigris region, the Kamenche of Turkey, the Rabab of Mediterranean Arabic lands, even after its strings became gut instead of horsehair, it remained a child of the natural world. Wood, skin, sinew, hair, and resin. It was a natural accompaniment, therefore, to the stories we told of the natural and the supernatural, so as it made its way across Europe, it became the instrument of choice for bards and minstrels. Lays and epic poems would often be accompanied by these expressive and adaptable fiddles, like this southern Slavic example of a folk fiddle used to accompany a Croatian epic tale. Oh, dear. 
an excerpt from Yudita, a retelling of the story of the biblical heroine Judith, performed by Katarin Livlianic with Norbert Rodenkirchen on early flutes and Albrecht Maurer playing a Goslitze, or Croatian folk fiddle. Across Europe, the Goslitze's Arabic cousin, the Rabab, was popularized by those leaving Europe and returning to it, traders, soldiers, crusaders, and the like, as much as by those who were coming into Europe by fame or by force. The Arab conquests of southern and eastern Europe at the end of the first millennium CE all helped musical culture flow into the region, alongside many other trends and imports. The rabab rapidly became the preferred instrument of the troubadours and trouvères of the medieval period, then called the rebec, and it accompanied their songs and played dance music in the Middle Ages. That song was called Compagnon Farai un Versker Convinen, one of the many poems of the early troubadour William IX of Aquitaine, sung and played there by Brice Duissi. The instrument you heard, the descendant of the Arabic rebec or rabab, is called a vielle, essentially French for fiddle, which itself comes from the Latin word fidula. Today's vielles are replicas of medieval fiddles, recreated on the basis of artistic representations in stone and parchment, since we have no existing copies any further back than the late 15th century. This vielle had several forms, most often oval, ovoid, or somewhat almond-shaped. It was, of course, easier to make this shape of fiddle, because during this time, vielles were carved out of a solid piece of wood. But the bowed-out sides and the relatively flat bridge of the oval vielles meant that while you could play several strings at once pretty well, it wasn't so easy to switch which string you played upon. This was not such a big issue when providing those juicy drones for medieval song, but for the virtuosic troubadour wanting to show off some fiddling chops, it was a hurdle that was only overcome when the vielle received a wasted middle. These wasted figure-eight vielles from the Middle Ages can be found on many medieval church carvings, perhaps most famously on Santiago de Compostela's Portico de la Gloria, or Portico of Glory from the late 20th century. In fact, you can find oval, ovoid, and figure-eight fiddles there, quite the instrumentarium.
jovial Renaissance dance, the Branle de Bretagne by Toineau Arbeau. By the Renaissance period, European musical life had so taken the violin into its mainstream that none other than Michael Praetorius wrote in his Syntagma Musicum that, since everyone knows about the violin family, it's unnecessary to indicate or write anything further about it. Well, luckily for us, he wrote and included drawings about it, as did many others from the time. But we also have the good fortune of having surviving examples of violins from this time, and with good reason. By the 1500s and well into the 1600s, the violin was seeing unparalleled success in all of Europe, rapidly becoming the string instrument of choice when it came to matching the human voice in flexibility, expression, and virtuosic display. Take, for example, how Monteverdi brings together voice and violins in his famous opera L'Orfeo. From Act 3 of Monteverdi's L'Orfeo, that was the aria Posente Spirito, with Nigel Rogers singing the famous aria. The chamber groups which were assembled for works such as these nascent operas soon became a cohesive playing unit, and their star player was most certainly the violin and its family. In fact, from the 16th century onwards, the violin in its various sizes became the instrument of choice over the viol family, for even though the viols were beautifully expressive and soft, the violin was seen as better suited to the polyphonic dance music that was becoming all the rage at the time. Italian patronage of the arts in this period had a lot to do with the development of the violin and with where this development took place. With Isabella d'Este's support of the arts, her hometown of Ferrara became a nucleus of musical activity, and instrument makers were there to supply the musicians of the area. The town of Brescia soon rose to prominence as another centre of violin making, but when Venice came online as a rival instrument-building city, thanks to members of the Linarol family, we saw more violins coming from the Venetian workshops of the late 16th century. But with the workshop of Andrea Amati and sons Antonio and Girolamo in the early 1600s, violin-making firmly established its new home in the Amati city of Cremona. It was also around this time that players particularly Italian players, were getting quite apt at showing off their skills on the instrument, especially because the models being turned out by Amati and company allowed for rapid changes in playing position, and the more arched bridge permitted the player to switch quickly and seamlessly from one string to another. This allowed for fast playing of florid passages, something highly prized by musicians in this period. Classic playing you just heard there 
Biagio Marini's Sonata Terza from his Opus 8, with Ingrid Matthews on violin and Byron Schenkman on harpsichord, gave us a glimpse into the world of the violin's golden era, showing why it was so prized by musicians and listeners alike. Players from that time, however, did not appear the same as those today whilst playing. For one, this violin, although already featuring the proportions, shape, and decorations we associate with the violin today, did not have a chin rest. In fact, it was not even held under the chin most of the time. Illustrations from the late 16th and early 17th centuries show players tucking the fiddle into the crook of their arm or resting it upon their breast. Internally, it was also a different animal. The late Renaissance and early Baroque instrument didn't have a bass bar, nor was its neck and fingerboard at such an acute angle relative to the rest of the body of the instrument, as it is in violins from the 19th century onwards. All of this gave a different sound and, combined with a bow that came to a graceful and slender point at its tip, favored a more dance-like phrasing and sprightlier articulation than the more symphonically oriented instrument this Baroque violin's descendants would represent. Composers such as Antonio Vivaldi, whose concerto for violin and strings in B-flat we just heard played by La Serenissima and violinist Adrian Chandler, wove a thread of continuity from the trio sonata form to the larger-scale concerto, featuring a solo player alternating with the rest of the ensemble players, and promoting the violin to its prominent role at the front of the orchestra. As the 18th century drove on, things started turning towards grander scales, the spectacle of Italian opera popularized by Handel, Porpora, and then, of course, Mozart, plus the growing prominence of the symphony orchestra. But the orchestral role of the violin grew out of the instrument's place in the chamber ensemble, a heritage it received from its Italian origins, and something we can hear Mozart deftly displaying in his own chamber works of the late 18th century. Like this familiar rondo, from his serenade in G major, Eine kleine Nachtmusik. Patrick Cohen Akenin and Les Folies Françoises, the fourth movement, Rondo, from the Serenade in G Major, K525, Eine kleine Nachtmusik, a little night music. Some familiar sounds that bring us to the end of this part of the violin story. But it doesn't end there. 
Between the end of the 1700s and the 20th century, the violin would witness changes to its physical shape and construction that responded to demands from audiences as well as players. But that, as they say, is a story for another day, for now we've gotten a chance to glimpse into the early history of the violin. I'm Vlad Smirshkevich, and I do hope our paths cross again soon, so we can explore where else this magnificent and versatile instrument went after the days of Mozart, Vivaldi, and Bach. And speaking of Bach, I'll leave you now with some of his music as a farewell. From Bach's Partita No. 2 in D minor for solo violin, the beautiful and timeless Chacona, played here by Stanley Ritchie. Until next time. Thank you.